Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. we've said nearly everything we want to say about Freemasonry's history, both real and imagined. But there's one more time period in Europe that we really have to discuss if we're going to try to give you the full picture of the way that Masons view themselves. And that's the story of Masonic repression by the 20th century's totalitarian states. Unfortunately for that century, that description doesn't really narrow things down much. The term totalitarian could probably be applied to societies as diversely terrible as Kim Il-sung's North Korea and the Taliban's on-again, off-again Afghani theocracy. Which is apparently on again now, reminding us of a Dennis Miller joke about the reunification of Germany from back when he was funny. I view the reunification of Germany in much the same way I view a possible Dean Martin-Jerry Lewis reconciliation. I haven't really enjoyed any of their previous work, and I'm not sure I need to see the new shit right now. Right. And it's definitely true that many of those governments have officially anathematized Freemasonry, including the Soviet Union, where it was seen as a bourgeois tool of oppression or some such. And it's also true, as John Dickey pointed out to us, that there are no Masonic lodges in the largely autocratic modern Middle East. Like, not one. And yet, in spite of that, the Masons continue to be a frequent target of conspiracy thinking. Just like you don't have to know any black people or live near any black people to be a racist, you don't have to know any Freemasons or have any Freemasonry in your country to be paranoid about the Freemasons. You know, that's why Hamas subscribes to the Judeo-Masonic conspiracy theory and bans Freemasons in its territory when there weren't any Freemasons there anyway. They're still very good fodder for a conspiracy theory in various parts of the world. So we're not casting a net that embraces all of the shitty governance options humanity considered last century, but rather, we're focusing on three specific yet linked situations, the distinct yet similar fascisms that gripped Italy, Germany, and Spain. We're almost certain that this is the first story you've heard about the mid-20th century in which the Germans aren't the main bad guys. But it's true. Hitler and his evil conspiracist underlings were definitely anti-Mason. But in this case, they're not even close to taking the crown. They're the second-placed finishers for a really shitty reason, so don't worry, they're still the biggest assholes ever. It's just this is, as you would expect at this point in learning about the Masons, a weird story. Let's start with Italy. 
Don't know about you, but even after a thorough marinating in World War II history as an undergraduate, and then still more post-graduation voluntary immersion, which, as an aging white man, is his most important inheritance from his forebears, I still don't have more than a high-points understanding of the history of Italian fascism. To wit, Mussolini carves out a path for other paranoid megalomaniac dipshits to follow way back in the 1920s, takes power in Italy with slogans emphasizing the country's greatness and assuring citizens that he will restore the glory of Rome, murders communists and other political enemies, makes the trains run on time, invades and conquers Ethiopia on some bullshit trumped-up justification, joins the Axis, deports Jews to death camps, does a bunch of sloppy seconds invasions of places the Germans already blitzkrieged, gets his ass handed to him by the Brits in Africa, is turned into a Hitler puppet by 43, and in his attempt to escape as the Allies take Rome in 45, gets removed from office with extreme prejudice by his own countrymen. And then his buddy is hung shirtless from a girder so that the Italians can take a turn beating the shit out of his corpse with hammers. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Exactly. Anyway, like other fascists, Mussolini didn't care for the Masons. Again, quoting the craft. The Masons embodied everything that he was intent on sweeping away as he created his dictatorship. Most of the opposition had abandoned Parliament in protest the previous summer. In their absence, they were now made to look crooked, pettifogging and sneaky. In a word, Masonic. Hitting the craft also threw a bone to fascist squads. These were thuggish paramilitary gangs who had cudgeled opposition of all kinds in the fields and piazzas. For them, the prospect of ransacking Masonic Lodge buildings and beating up brethren was lip-smacking. As we probably should expect by now, going anti-Masonic also endeared Il Duce to the most conservative elements in Italy's Catholic Church. Mussolini and his fascists were again promulgating their anti-Masonic laws and beating up suspected Masons way back in the 1920s. As Dickey notes, the key vote on an anti-Masonic statute in the Italian parliament was held way back in 1925, far enough before the global rise of fascism that Mussolini was still having to let the communists have their say in the Italian parliament. Which, as we noted in passing with the Soviet Union, didn't help the Masons any. As the communists considered Freemasonry a bourgeois affectation, the sooner done away with, the better. I hope that we've made it clear that the historical record of Masonry is quite mixed, but this seems to be a big mark in its favor. If you piss off both fascists and communists, the odds are you're doing something right. But in the end, Mussolini's play-acting fight against the Freemasons was mostly for show. Dickey quotes one Italian senator who, at the time, pointed out that the law against Freemasonry was, in practice, a means of eliminating the right of all citizens to form groups of any kind, under the ostensible goal of suppressing a Masonry that was, in the Italy of the time, barely a thing. When the debate in the Senate finally came a few days later, there were still a few voices prepared to raise doubts. One senator complained that the grandiose and imposing building, known as Freedom of Association, has been burned down just to roast the bedraggled chicken that is Freemasonry. Needless to say, the Senate voted the bill into law by a huge majority. Before the law came into force, the bedraggled chicken had already bowed to the inevitable and begun dissolving itself. Which is not super surprising, because, duh, fascism. Moving on to the man whose mustache makes it look like his nose shit itself. That's the third time you used that joke. Over five years, unicorn. I want my props. Anyway, Hitler didn't care for masonry. Like, not at all mostly because it was talked about in his favorite book of all time, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Freemasonry was mentioned at various points in the protocols, like the press, international finance, socialism, and pretty much everything else. The craft was portrayed as a tool of the great and despicable Jewish stratagem. We shall create and multiply Freemasonic lodges in all the countries of the world, 
absorb into them all who may become or who are prominent in public activity, for in these lodges we shall find our principal intelligence office and means of influence. Considering our second-ever episode was entirely devoted to this hideous blood-soaked forgery, we're not going into detail about it again, except to say that in keeping with Der Fuhrer we know and loathe, his anti-Masonry was, like the Protocols, subsumed beneath his conviction that the Jews were the real power, while everyone else, including the Freemasons, were simply puppets. Hitler, it should be said, was a believer in the Masonic conspiracy theory. He saw the Masonic lodges as servants of international Judaism. In 1935, long after doing away with lots of other enemies, like jazz musicians and birth control clinics and so on, the Nazis finally abolished Freemasonry. Even those Freemasons who said, we're not Freemasons anymore, we're not at all Jewish, we've got rid of all the Jewish elements, we're a Teutonic anti-Semitic brotherhood. No, he said, sorry, that's just a Masonic trick. You're banned. But Hitler did not then go on and persecute individual people who'd been Freemasons. There were Freemasons who were tortured to death, who died in death camps, who went to the gas chambers. But the reason they did is overwhelmingly because they were either political dissidents or because they were Jews. And that's the reason why they were killed. He devoted himself to drafting Mein Kampf, the memoir manifesto that gave definitive shape to his worldview. The book showed him to be a fervent believer in the idea of a Judeo-Masonic conspiracy. The Jews, Hitler asserted, wanted to tear down racial and civil barriers, and so fought for religious tolerance. In Freemasonry, they found an excellent instrument for this purpose. The governing circles and the higher strata of the political and economic bourgeoisie are brought into the Jews' nets by the strings of Freemasonry and never need to suspect what is happening. So for Hitler, Masonry was an underhand instrument of the Jew, a means to spread liberalism, pacifism, and Jewish material interests. So for Hitler, Masonry was definitely a problem, but it was a second-order problem always subordinated to the driving mania of his life, the so-called Jewish question. Dickey traces Hitler's Masonic thinking to that same post-French Revolution mania that Baruel stirred up in the first place, largely because it was totally unfalsifiable. Anti-Masonry had proved so addictive a mindset since the French Revolution, partly because it contained ready-made counter-arguments to any objections. Good Masons could be dismissed as dupes, caught up in a facade erected by Grand Masters to hide their sinister plans. The repeated failure to discover nasty secrets in the lodges did not matter, because the real danger lay in the hidden lodges. Somehow, the true face of this evil never quite came into focus. The Masons seemed all the more cunning and pervasive as a result. But where Mussolini saw anti-Masonic posturing as a sop for his allies in the Catholic Church and the most violent thugs in his movement, Hitler saw the nebulousness of the cause as a distraction from the quote-unquote real threat. He needed to focus on making every German shit-scared of every Jewish person on Earth for no good reason whatsoever, which was a big enough hill to climb without getting bogged down in the murky confusion of how exactly Masonry was a menace to the pure German Volk. As Dickey notes, quote, He hated Masonry, but to let any attack on it clutter the call for a war on Jews would be to rob his ideology of its brutal simplicity. Thus Hitler the conman won out over Hitler the insane ideologue in this limited way. He used anti-Freemasonry as a tool that he would deploy only judiciously, as a support to his anti-Semitism and anti-Communism, but never as a primary goal. Please don't construe this to mean that it was an easy road being a Freemason in Nazi Germany. 
Dickey documents the gradual dismantling of the craft throughout the Reich, including specific nauseating details like the fact that the former Hamburg Grand Lodge, long after it was rifled through by the SS in search of damning documents proving the Judeo-Masonic conspiracy, was used in 1941 as an assembly point for the deportation of the city's Jews to the ghetto in Lodz, Poland. Including the nauseating detail that it was apparently chosen because it was close to the cattle station, and therefore the livestock cars that would be used to move these doomed people out of the fatherland. Boy, talking about the Nazis never gets less disgusting, does it? But keeping our eyes on the ball, here's the point where we have to call into question a version of history that some Masons have eagerly embraced. Freemasons love to tell the story of their own repression, and there's no doubt that they were repressed by the 20th century dictatorships. Freemasonry even today is banned in China and almost all Muslim countries and so on and so forth. But because the Nazis are the great bad guys of world history, the Freemasons rather cherish the idea of their having been repressed by the Nazis because it allows them to align themselves with the victims of world history. They were also repressed in other authoritarian regimes in the 20th century, but the most obvious instances are Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and nationalist Spain. And Freemasons love to conjure up this image, if you like, of emaciated Freemasons in concentration camps. The real story is actually rather messier and not remotely as flattering to Freemasons as that narrative of victimhood. For a start, the most powerful traditions of Freemasonry in Germany were avowedly anti-Semitic and wouldn't have Jewish members. And that's going right back deep into the 19th century. Before Nazism was very powerful, they were expressing anti-Semitic values they were hubs of anti-Semitic values and very quickly tried to embrace Nazism and align themselves with Nazism and purify themselves of Old Testament elements. All the Temple of Solomon, all of that had to go because it was suspiciously Jewish. Let's dive a little deeper into the weird relationship between Mason's conception of their persecution and the much muddier reality that Dickie just alluded to. First of all, let's talk numbers. The Freemasons claim that as many as 200,000 of their brothers were exterminated by the Nazis, which of course would make it sound as if Freemasons were one of the groups that were rounded up, tortured, and murdered for this identity, in the same way that Jews, gypsies, gay people, and others were liquidated in their millions for the crime of being undesirable to the thousand-year Reich. But the real story, as Dickey explains in his book, is that the vast preponderance of Masons murdered by the Nazis were killed because of other identities they held, most often the fact that they were Jewish or leftists, or fell into other unacceptable classifications. Take, for example, the horrifying treatment of one Karl von Ossietzky, a prominent critic of Nazism, who was picked up in 1935, horrifically beaten, starved, overworked in prison camps, and finally succumbed in 1938. He was indeed a Mason, but that fact was purely incidental to his fate. Not that this stopped modern Freemasons from counting him among the death toll they consider specifically related to the victim's Masonic affiliation. So, what can we conclude about the Masons' fate under Hitler? Well, their lodges were definitely shut down, and their rituals' extremely biblical Jewish content, that is, all of the King Solomon, Hiram Abiff stuff, certainly made them suspect. 
But there's no evidence that the Nazis ever arrested or murdered Masons en masse for the crime of being Masons. It is the fate of Freemasonry at the hands of fascism, Nazism, that has since become integral to the Brotherhood's collective memory. Today, when faced with suspicion, as they so often are, Freemasons draw inspiration from the oppressed brothers of the fascist generation. For that reason, the closure of Hamburg Grand Lodge in 1935 by the Gestapo occupies a special place in many a Masonic history book. Masons tell the story as a cameo of the craft's integrity in the face of the worst adversity, as a demonstration of how Freemasonry and fascism stand at opposing moral poles. The Masons claim many martyrs to mourn, particularly of Nazism, as many as 200,000 according to some estimates. Freemasons were arrested, imprisoned and exterminated, one recent guide to Masonry states. Assertions like this inevitably evoke images of the Nazi death camps and their skeletal Jewish victims. How many Freemasons died under the Nazi regime? The research has yet to be done, but it seems very, very unlikely that the total of Masons murdered reached as many as 200,000. That would represent a staggeringly high percentage of the total number of Masons in countries occupied by German forces in the Second World War. What is certain is that the vast majority of those who did die were not killed because they were Masons, but above all because they were Jews. Austria, which became part of the Third Reich in the Anschluss of March 1938, is probably typical. When Nazi forces marched in, there were 800 Masons in Austria. Left behind in the lodges when the Nazis arrived in 1938 were many Jews, two-thirds of that total of 800. Although the Nazi state in Germany crushed Freemasonry, it did not persecute individual Freemasons with remotely the same lethal fanaticism as it did other groups. Mein Kampf, after all, had given non-Jewish craftsmen an escape clause. Hitler's memoir had said that ordinary Masons never needed to suspect that the Jews were really in charge behind the scenes. So in the overwhelming majority of cases, it was enough for a brother to recant for him to dodge the jackboot in the concentration camp. So if the numbers are so much lower than the official Masonic estimates, and nearly all of those cases involved victims persecuted for something other than their Masonic affiliation, why are modern Masons still clinging to this narrative? The reasons why Masons have exaggerated what they endured at Hitler's hands are not hard to discern. The Nazis are Hollywood's favourite bad guys. Contrasted against the pitch-black evil that they represent, the Masonic tradition seems to shine more nobly. That's pretty gross, bandwagoning on the suffering of more victimised groups. It is indeed. But there was an actual, honest-to-God, shining example of German Masonic heroism in the face of Hitler's goons. The symbolic Grand Lodge of Germany, formed in 1930 expressly to oppose the anti-Semitic turn in Freemasonry as Nazism's influence grew, was headed by a lawyer named Leopold Muffelman, who had the balls to keep criticizing Hitler after he took power. Seeing the writing on the wall, Muffelman and his brothers made plans to relocate to Jerusalem, but he was betrayed by an informer and arrested in 1933. Forced into hard labor, his existing heart condition killed him by the middle of the next year. A hero, for sure. But the problem for the Masons here is that Muffelman and his group never numbered more than 2,000 brothers at their peak, and they weren't even recognized by the other German Masonic lodges, specifically because they refused to exclude Jewish brothers. Thus, quote, As one historian has pointed out, it is misleading of the Freemasons to treat the symbolic Grand Lodge of Germany as a poster child of Masonic victimization and courageous resistance. It's also particularly weird that the Masons insist on this easily falsifiable narrative of heroic resistance to the Nazis when there is a real, no-shit, horrifying story of persecution of Freemasons by fascists. It's just not the one that happened in Hitler's Reich. 
Generalissimo Francisco Franco, though he did not plunge Spain into the turmoil of World War II, was unquestionably part of the same wave of populist fascism that brought Mussolini and Hitler to power in their respective countries. One of the things that made Franco unique was his tight alignment with the Catholic power structure in Spain. Both Hitler and Mussolini, who were also Catholics, made mutually beneficial political alliances with the sympathetic Catholic power structures of their nations as well. True. But Franco's Spanish flavor of fascism had a uniquely Catholic bent to it, which is probably one of the reasons that it was, truly, a terrifying time and place to be a Freemason. For example, that speech we just excerpted was the last one Franco gave in 1975, less than two months before his death, after he had ruled Spain for 36 years, the whole time relentlessly persecuting a largely imaginary Freemason opposition— and what did he rail against in that last speech, the one we just quoted? He went to his deathbed raving about the Masons and their war on Spain. His very last speech given in public just before he collapsed and died in 1975 raved about the Freemasons and their attempt to undermine Spain. The violence and paranoia of the Masonic persecution in Spain was far, far more serious in Spain and far more lasting than it was even in Nazi Germany. How bad could it possibly have been? Well, the mass murder of Freemasons began within days of the start of the Spanish Civil War. In September 1936, the Army of Africa was rewarded for its successes when its commander, General Francisco Franco, assumed supreme military and political leadership of the rebellion. He would soon adopt the title of Caudillo, the Spanish equivalent of Duce or Führer. In nationalist Spain, the army and right-wing vigilantes imposed a reign of terror. The intention was loudly proclaimed to cleanse the fatherland of its political and cultural pollutants. Anyone associated with the Republic and its institutions, with the political left, and even with secular modernity, was liable to be arrested, tortured, and executed. Trade unionists and politicians, workers and peasants, liberals and intellectuals, emancipated women and homosexuals. Tens of thousands died. Among them were many Freemasons. Most of the Masonic victims were killed in the early months of the Civil War, when the violence was not centrally orchestrated, and left little paperwork behind for historians to work on. While the majority of Freemasons killed by the Nationalist forces were, as the book notes, murdered within months, the Franco regime's obsession with Masonic intrigues and their supposed threat to Spain would, as Dickie just noted, continue unabated for the subsequent 40 years, until the Caudillo's untimely death. Untimely? This piece of shit was 82. Yeah, it would have been a lot better if he had died decades before. He lived, like, 36 years too long. His death, therefore, was untimely. You need to work on your verbal comprehension skills, Dana. If you really want a story of political persecution of Freemasonry, the price that Masonic history has paid, if you like, for this fetishization of the Nazi baddies and wanting to be victims of the Nazi baddies, is that it's neglected what happened to the Freemasons in Spain. It's an astonishing story. General Franco was a completely paranoid anti-Freemason to his dying day. Atrocities deliberately targeting Freemasons started as soon as the Spanish Civil War began. After winning the war, he set up this special tribunal to persecute Freemasons. 
with a minimum jail term of 12 years and a day. Franco, as Dickie notes, was a paranoiac of the purest race serene, perhaps even more so than Hitler. But the Generalissimo's obsession was focused specifically on his perceived Masonic enemies. They, for Franco, held the same boogeyman position in his insane worldview that the Jews did for Hitler. Masonry was a slippery beast. The men around Franco seemed to have viewed their struggle to pin it down as a heroic labor, much trickier than the Nazi war against Jews. Mauricio Calavia, a specialist anti-Masonic investigator, remarked in 1945, Lucky Hitler, when it comes to granting or denying anyone nationality, he can be guided by the sign of a hooked nose or a Talmudic rite. Poor us. To deny anyone nationality, we have to rely on less pronounced indicators, a Masonic confession, which is never really confessed. The more meticulous was the special tribunal's work of repression, the more terrifying the spectre of Masonic conspiracy grew. When Harry S. Truman, a well-known Freemason, became President of the United States in 1945, the Cardillo interpreted this development as a significant advance towards Freemasonry's goal of fusion within the presidency of the United States of supreme executive power and the supreme Masonic powers. Writing under a pseudonym in 1951, Franco implied that there could be no victory over Freemasonry this side of the Day of Judgment. Daughter of evil, its demonic spirit survives the defeat and comes to life in new beings. In spite of their mewling complaints about the impossible complexity of their task, Franco's apparatchiks went about it with gusto, leading to a level of violent persecution that is difficult to account for even today. The most brutal persecution took place on the coast of Valencia and Alicante. When the war ended in Spain, the military barracks remained. It was here that soldiers practiced shooting. It was a shooting gallery, and someone came up with the idea of using it as a killing machine. 2,238 people have been murdered here since 1939. For the traditional Spanish rite, Freemasons were considered worse enemies than the communists and socialists, because the church was, well, and still is, very powerful in Spain. And Freemasonry is considered by the church as its personal enemy. The problem is that in the case of Freemasons, we don't even have their names. No records were kept. So it's impossible to determine whether 2,000 or 4,000 Masons were killed. Franco's anti-Masonic, anti-Masonic obsession left not only a history of persecution, but also a grotesque warping of the very fascist bureaucracy he controlled, all with an aim toward stamping out a Masonic, anti-Spanish conspiracy that not only couldn't be shown to ever have existed in the first place, but that by a few years into his dictatorship would have been demonstrably impossible to keep up. You can still visit, I visited the card index file of Freemasons that was collected over the coming 20, 25 years. And just to give you an idea of the paranoia, is that there are about 80,000 names listed on that as Freemasons to be hunted down, to be persecuted, to be put on trial. The number of Freemasons at the end of the Spanish Civil War, number in Spain, because lots had fled, a lot had been killed, the number left is very, very difficult to estimate but it may be only about 500, 1,000. And yet you have 80,000 people listed in there as Freemasons, as agents of the Masons. 
And things like the Rotary Club and so on were treated as if they were front organisations for the Masons. And Franco was fed conspiracy theory nonsense by some of his secret agents pointed around the world who were feeding him for a long time what he thought was privileged inside information. But of course, it was nonsense. It was like Leo Taxel's revelations about the international Masonic conspiracy against Spain. Dickey mentions here that he had visited Salamanca and seen the funhouse mirror version of a Masonic lodge that the fascist government had installed there as a sort of horrific warning about the terrors of masonry, designed to make Spaniards shudder at the evil their country would have been exposed to, save for the good offices of the Generalissimo. The book goes into more detail. The Salamanca Lodge is the last surviving example of its kind in Europe. It was built as propaganda by the Francoist authorities in the 1940s. Everything in it is a genuine artifact confiscated during police raids on lodges. Franco's men took bits and pieces from their hoard to create the spookiest ensemble they could. It is not very hard to make Freemasonry seem weird. The Nazis mounted similar shows in Germany and countries they occupied. Having closed the lodges, the SS put skeletons in some and invited the public in to take a look. Across fascist Europe, the message was that the nation's saviours had finally vanquished the Masonic menace exposing the craft secrets for all to ogle. Franco took this obsession so far as to have a Masonic temple built right inside his intelligence service. This representation of the Masonic temple is a thing of fantasy. It's designed to make a negative impression on visitors and the population. And with that, finally, we've said essentially all we have to say about the Masons which means we're on to the very last of our topics in this, the pre 1900 Secret Society series. There's definitely a 20th to 21st century version coming eventually. We're just not sure whether it's the next big topic in the lineup. I mean, we gotta do aliens, right? Future scheduling dilemmas aside, there's one group we absolutely can't leave this series without addressing. A society that has inspired truly bizarre conspiracy theories for two and a half centuries the inner circle group that exists at the secret heart of many other conspiracist targets. Adam Weishaupt's brief but immortal creation. Holy shit, we're finally doing the Illuminati.
So what are you going to listen to now? You could browse endless podcast lists and take a shot. You could ask your mates and wait for no one to reply. Or you could listen to us, your friendly castologists, the professional pickers of all things podcast. Zane, Nick and Liz listen to all the things so you don't have to and find the best podcast that should be on your radar. Every Monday we're coming at you with three hand-picked podcast recommendations. Then we review each other's selections so you know what's really good. Will we always agree with each other's picks? Yeah, probably not. But hey, you're clever. You know how that's how reviews work. You got this. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast. Let's talk about X baby. Ah, uh, crappy relationships, the bane of our collective existence. But what do we learn from our mistakes? I'm relationship columnist Liz Best. And I'm funny guy Tom Harris. Ghosts of Boyfriends Past will chat to guests about love gone wrong and take you on a journey through the funny, tragic, horrifying... And sometimes just plain bonkers stories about that crazy little thing called love. It's like a group therapy session. With two people completely unqualified to be leading it. New episodes drop fortnightly on Thursday, so join in to hear tales of heartbreak and woe and hopefully wind up a little wiser or drunker for it. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast.